Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. How's your week in technology going, Joe? Uh, pretty good. It's working for you? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. No, no gremlins? I don't, I can't think of any gremlins just yet. Hmm. I mean, well, my, yeah. my computer's dying, my laptop's dying. They just need <laughs> upgrades. But, you know. Yes. Yeah. I had MS Teams issues all day, so I wondered if they were universal or just my workplace. Oh, but, um, I did not have any issues with it's Teams. It's rare. We're I, a Teams shop as well. Yeah, I, I generally find it great. Anyway, every, everyone can have a bad day at times, and I'm sorry to say MS Teams was having that day. Um, I hope your day out there was going much better than that. Uh, tonight you are in for a bit of fun with us. We're going to speak to Rose Bishop about her Fringe Festival show, two stories about going on the internet. And then later in the show, we'll be chatting with Head of Programming at South by Southwest Sydney. Fenella Kernerbone will be sharing some, you know, little bit of help navigating the, the Chockers schedule that they've put together for us. That's happening mid-October and uh, should be definitely on your radar or something to consider if you are yeah. the sort of person listening to our show. Um, so that's coming up later. Before we get there... Do we have some news, Vanessa? We certainly do. Hey, um, I don't know if you ever listen to The Party Show, Joe, but at midnight on a Saturday on Triple R, I love nothing better than to try and get home just before then, switch on The Party Show. I love that you think I'm young enough to be <laughs> awake. <laughs> well, Headley interviewed the um, Victorian uh, ombudsman uh, very recently, I think it was last Saturday, Deborah Glass, um, and I don't know if you know about the Vic Ombudsman, but they have a 10-year tenure and then they, uh, then they retire. You know, Well, at least she recommends that you make it your last job because you're not going to make any friends doing that job if you're doing it well. And she was so inspiring. She's quite an amazing speaker. And uh, one of the things that, that her um, office has put out recently is a report released on Monday that um, was into the EV road tax. The state government introduced the zero and low emission vehicle, so ZLEV, distance-based charge, in 2021. And what it means is that electric vehicle owners pay 2.8 cents per kilometre that they drive and 2.3 cents per kilometre for plug-in hybrids in lieu of the fuel excise tax. So you can see they're getting ahead. They're like, okay, if, this, if EVs take off, we're going to lose our fuel excise tax. So what's going to replace that? In this report that came out on Monday... The report found that Vic Roads has overcharged electric vehicle owners and hit them with penalties resembling robo debt and unreasonably cancelled and oh, they'd also unreasonably cancelled registrations. So that's a pretty strong charge and um, you've got to remember in 2021 environmentalists also slammed the tax as a handbrake on EV adaptation and adoption and they have a, a challenge going on in the High Court. Anyhow, more than 30 electric vehicle owners complained to the watchdog about being charged for driving hybrid cars, mostly on petrol, meaning that they paid double tax on the distance-based charge and the fuel excise, right. and then being penalised yeah. for submitting their annual odometer readings late. 
so it's quite an onerous process. You've got to submit a photograph of your odometer to Vic Roads to calculate your charges. And the department has cancelled an estimated 243 vehicle registrations after owners failed to do this. So, you know, the ombudsman's saying that, look, this seems like unreasonable penalties for something that is a, a new behaviour that needs to be adopted and the owners haven't really been aware of their obligations here. Um, some of them have been overseas when this requirement's come in and not been able to comply, you know, not been able to physically be there to take a photo of their odometer and what have you. You can imagine there's many ways this can fall over. So it's it's a great report. It's just good to have someone looking out for people when policy is created a little bit on the run and perhaps the behavioural change aspects of it haven't been as simple for people to take up as they want to be. And we want to make the move to electric vehicles as simple as possible. Yeah, so, it seems like they should remove any, you know, disincentive to for lower emissions. They yeah. certainly should, anyway. So that's that piece. Great work by the Vic Ombudsman. Watch this space. Hopefully um, this will improve the way the process works and we'll get to a nice, happy, medium space there. And some chat GPT sensory news? Yeah. Have you caught up on any of this? I have not. Okay. Um, so chat GPT can now see, hear and speak. So they've enabled a few new input capabilities for the large language model, which will mean that it will extend beyond just being a language-based model and also adopt, you know, visual um, abilities, which means that they've trained it on libraries containing lots of images and also um, lots of audio of people speaking, so voices. This is going to be really interesting because it's just the the most widely adopted of the um, generative AI uh, publicly available and freely available tools at the moment. And clearly they want to try and keep that spot. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But look into it in your own time because I'm sure there'll be lots of emergent examples of people playing and testing the limits and the abilities. Well, one, one sense that uh, was not mentioned there was taste. And um, <laughs> I was recently advertised to by um, what Coke claims is a collaboration with AI of a new Coke flavour. So, um, yeah, don't know about that. Yeah. Um, so in a related story, um, Spotify is experimenting with an open AI-enabled voice translation capability. And you can imagine that people taking transcripts of their blogs takes a lot of time and energy and money. And then... Is this a podcast thing? Yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. And then the ability to translate audio is also a very expensive service to try and get done. On top of that, the ability to sort of generate audio versions of translations, not just of the transcript, is, you know, a bit of a dream capability. And Google's been experimenting in this space for a long time, um, and they do have some tools, you know, for some languages that you can sort of experiment and hold them up. And people have been trying lots of different different things in that space. I've seen people with little gadgets in Japan where you speak into it in Japanese and then it translates it into English and it's a little bit broken when I've seen the examples. gets things a little bit wrong. People have a million accents. So it's a very wicked problem to try and solve. Yeah. But they're trying to throw open AI at it. You can read more about that in The Verge. It's early days for all of these uses. Yeah. Cool. Kind of interesting. And the last piece of news we thought we'd bring you today is about Giphy Cat. Did you ever get into Giphy Cat? I didn't get into Giphy Cat. It was a website where people produced GIFs to embed in blogs 
and they were, you know, unique versions of a cat. They were like gifts of a cat and every cat was unique and it was kind of an early NFT sort of concept, but it wasn't an NFT because it didn't have some of those those things built into it. What's happening? It was shut down by its owners, Snapchat, at the start of September, much to the uh, sadness of many Giphy Cat fans and, uh, and to Ro, one of our co-hosts. They've suggested it might be time to go back to your online archive and make sure that you haven't lost your Giphy Cat if you oh, had generated one. So, may, may everyone's Giphy Cats be safe and, yeah. and, 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 and animated. Pixelated or something. I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Hey, it is time to welcome to studio uh, our first guest for the evening. Rose Bishop is a stand-up comedian and writer. She's a former writer and presenter of Channel 31's satirical news show The Leak, and you might know her from there. And as a stand-up, she was a Raw Comedy National finalist in 2019. Quite the um, accolade. We have Rose in the studio with us tonight to discuss her show, Two Stories About Going on the Internet, which is part of this year's Fringe Festival. Hey, Rose. Hello. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here with us um first of all we saw this title and thought this is this is our show this is the show for people like us but tell us a bit about you know what your show is going to be about yeah I did try and come up with a more subtle title but uh, (laughs) I thought you know what we'll just go very literal great um yeah so look it's a show that uh I intended originally as um a purely like theatrical fictional piece. I was going to write a story about some made up people um, and an online role playing game. But then I guess the the stand ups a little too strong in me now, and I started thinking about why I even knew what an online role playing game was because I don't have any history playing one myself. Yeah, and it's sort of a a long involved personal story about a weird relationship and meeting people on the internet, moving to Berlin. Um, and it's some of my odder personal stories that I've never found a place to put in stand-up because they get a little dark, they're not necessarily funny. <laughs> and so I ended up um, creating sort of a hybrid show that is uh, like swapping between these stories of these um, fictional people playing a role-playing game and sort of forming a relationship across the world, having never met through this game, um, and then just sort of working in some of my own stories about people that I've met on the internet in over my time. That alone I would go and see. (laughs) (laughs) Is this something that you've worked up as a one-woman show or have you got multiple people involved? Nope, just me, just me telling telling stories. And and my friend uh, Avery Hutley, who is um, a musician but she works purely electronically um she's doing the music for it and with so she's sort of composed that based off the script and she'll be like mixing it live and so different different sort of sections of music for each section of the story which is really cool I haven't done that before that's awesome yeah how did you go about thinking about the sort of emotional journey that you maybe wanted to take people on without spoiling what that (laughs) journey may or may not be well I mean I just sort of wrote it and the themes found themselves but you know when you when you're writing about people meeting online it's hard not to sort of end up writing stories about like loneliness and grasping for connection really um because I know that was sort of my start in uh 
making making friends on the internet was just that that feeling of um, you know uh, it being a way to sort of meet people, um, but in a I don't know in a very of its time kind of way I guess like I'm have sort of been writing and thinking a lot about how unvisual early internet was and how interesting it was to sort of meet people in this very anonymous kind of way um not like chat room anonymous not like ASL kind of stuff but like you know uh like live journal something that comes up a bit in the show and how you know it was quite hard to embed photos back then oh like you could you had it, to have image hosting yeah and then yeah. you just sort of have a basic knowledge of html yeah. and um yeah and i just kind of have been thinking a lot about how interesting and formative it is to have these experiences of meeting people online where you don't even necessarily have photos of them you just have their own words and you're often meeting through these very sort of removed from context kind of forums like for me it was fandoms and you're just sort of connecting in these very abstract ways <laughs> And, um, yeah, so it sort of got me thinking about, like, how we sort of constructed identity on the internet circa my era, which was, you know, probably peaking around 2005. Wow. What really um, sort of grabbed my attention about your show was that um, it was about meeting people that you – meeting people in real life that you met on the internet Mm. in 1997. And is this your friend's story? Well, yeah, so the people that I've – um, sort of written are a bit earlier than my era, but that's because, yeah, so so my personal era of meeting people on the internet was around 2005. It was through LiveJournal. It was through the Harry Potter fandom, RIP. <laughs> um, look, I'm not proud of it. Uh, but there were so many things we didn't know there's, I mean, even then, even at the time, I knew it wasn't a good... I knew the books weren't good, you know. Politics aside, the books weren't very good, but, you know, I think the thing about fandom is that often it is is just about connection more than it is about the source material. But, yeah, through uh, sort of making a friend <laughs> through that and ending up living in her house, which is a long story I go into in the show, um, which gets a little weird, I ended up sort of uh, meeting someone overseas and we were together for three or four years Um but he worked for a game that I'd, people might have heard of it if they're deeply they've been deeply online since the 80s um it was called Avalon the Legend Lives I think was the full name he just always called it Avalon this is a deep cut yeah Yeah. it's got a Wikipedia page it was um so it's an um, multiplayer online role-playing game um and I think it was like the first of its kind that sort of went online it was built um you know in an era of just being like computers connected to each other um I think he built it in Sheffield um, so it wasn't it wasn't my um, ex who built it. It was a friend of his who was older, who he met when he was younger. A sort of <laughs> the guy that I dated was like a, a a sort of nascent hacker who met this guy and then ended up working for this game. The game I think uh, started around eighty eight or eighty nine and then went online about ninety four. And the thing that fascinated me about it is that it still exists today in pretty much exactly the same format as it did in 1994. Like, the the code's been um, expanded so that, like, the world has been sort of coded out to have more, like, places and spaces and they sort of, um, like, finesse the, like, the gameplay and the commands and stuff, but, like, it still just is green text on a black screen, like yes. the Matrix. Like, it's still, like 
commands to be like, I'm stabbing him with a sword. <laughs> and I think I think that's maybe why people like it because um, it still has like a really active subscriber base. Uh, so, yeah, that's what sort of got me interested in because I was sort of like, okay, so this is my era of the internet. Now it got me really interested in what the previous era of the internet was and yeah I, I guess there's a there's a new one now but <laughs> I, like, I like the old one better than the new one. oh <laughs> come on now yeah they've all got good qualities yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is quite striking how you think of the immense popularity of the clock app at the moment you know <laughs> yeah. and and how it's image and video driven mm-hmm. and the addictive qualities that it has and yet, I don't think we found the internet less compelling then. What what do you think were, were the addictive qualities then and, and were they less harmful than they are now? I don't know. I mean, I have this theory. Um, <laughs> I have a theory that we're in like the second era of the internet right now and I divide the first era and the second era into cat internet and dog internet. Um, <laughs> oh, controversial. So I think like, no, I'm, you're onto something. So I think like early internet was cat internet. And I mean, it was literally cat internet as well. Like a lot of the early memes, like remember like business cat and, yep. you know, I can has cheeseburger and stuff. Like there was a lot of like cat based imagery. And I think it kind of reflects the sort of people that were online at the time, like more sort of like introverts, um, sort of like uh, people who thought of themselves as like, other and yeah whereas like now we're on dog internet and dogs are more like you know everyone loves a dog they're everywhere they're like they're more extroverted and they're like pretty and they run around and i i do have a soft spot for cat internet um oh my god joe you're so cat internet and i'm dog internet (laughs) (laughs) i'm just cat person and i'm allergic to them i just can't be (laughs) i mean i love both equally but I mean, you know, the thing I guess I miss most about that era that was, like, addictive but also maybe a little bit more healthy of, like, early internet was the fact that there was such a clear distinction between being on and offline. Yeah. Mm. That's one thing I really miss was that when you were online, you were, like, you know, you had that little, like, modem sound to sort of, like, ferry you in and then you were, like, online and you were absorbed in it. And then when you were offline, you were just free. <laughs> like, no one could get you. That's true. <laughs> no notifications. I um, remember when I first got uh, a Wi-Fi card for my laptop and this is the early 2000s and I would take my laptop to bed with me and I'd be like I'm on the bed to net <laughs> and that's a big thing. and it was a really big thing like I can take the whole internet to bed there were already those signs though about what sort of you know dopamine or serotonin mm. hits you were getting from things like the ICQ message sound <laughs> mm-hmm. and and how addictive that would be I yeah. don't think we realized even mm. though we knew we were addicted to it at the time but it still has has grown beyond my wildest yeah. imaginings. Yeah. I, yeah, it wasn't necessarily any more pure because I think it would be easy to be sort of judgmental and be like, right. oh, everyone's putting their tits on the internet now. Like it was somehow <laughs> Everybody was doing that then too. Then, oh. Exactly. And yeah. also, you know, we were still all sort of peacocking and yeah. you know, trying to show yeah. off and one-up just in like weird squirrely forums, not necessarily <laughs> like on Instagram. <laughs> But oh. as you were talking about, like, creation of identity and it not being very visual um, and and having sort of pseudonyms and things like mm. that, and then the internet became very real name 
with Facebook. Yep. Now it seems to be coming out the other side again. Which I think is good. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's it's something that, um, yeah, like Avery and I, who's doing the music, have talked about because she's trans and we talked a lot about how, you know, how important that early internet was to a lot of people in being able to, like, and this is something that I sort of write about in the show, not about identity, but just generally, uh, not about gender identity, sorry, but just generally um, is just the fact that it gave you the ability to try on identities absolutely um and to try them on very anonymously with no real sort of real world consequences um and And it's such a normal and healthy part of growing up Mm. that adolescents in particular you know test boundaries and try different things but that seems like such a high risk Mm. way of doing things and Mm. online you can do it in a it can be a safer space Mm -hmm. um of course you need i guess you need sort of some checks or balances or even I guess in the in the real world some kind of regulation because there's probably more safety concerns now than there were Mm. before but yeah I think there is something to be said for anonymity. Mm. And what about the sorts of bonds that we form you know real life versus non-real life you know like Mm. friends and then when they make that transition um, how have you how have you felt about that you know, have you experienced a lot of that transition from not in real life to real life or has it only been the rare few? Um, well, yeah, I don't think anyone really stuck from that time. Um, me and that ex definitely don't have any contact anymore, but that's for reasons that I'll go into in the show that become, you know, legal and... Sounds cathartic. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> oh, no, just, just Berlin. It's a complicated sure, place. Sure. Uh, stuff happens. Um, but, yeah, I had some really important friendships from that sort of like fandomy kind of time um one of them we keep in a vague kind of contact but not really because I guess that was a very specific time in our lives um and yeah I guess maybe we don't really have that connection anymore in the absence of that fandom I remember there was another woman who um you know at the time was a very important part of that sort of community and she did end up sort of getting on social media and adding me and adding my family and my parents were just like this is cool I'll be friends with her as well and then I found out she was a Trump supporter oh, <laughs> and I was no. like oh do you remember <laughs> That's the, first the flip side time of anonymity someone added you on Facebook and you sort of got a Facebook invite or something yeah yeah I was on Facebook really early um because yeah I think I did you have to pretend to be a US college student I remember having to do that to get on Facebook early early enough that I didn't have to be a US college student but I think I did need to be an university student so Mm. I did need to use uh, like my university Mm. details to get on um and yeah I guess it was like a mix because I was getting added by these people that I'd never met before but who I knew through like Harry Potter fan fiction <laughs> forums and I was like this is fine and then I get added by just you know someone who lived in the same city as me and I'd be like yuck no <laughs> you're in a safe space here Rose for me it was a Buffy forum like, there you we know, go yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> Joe, what about you I, um, yeah, what was I your shame oh look I was uh deeply into from about 94 to 98 I was deeply into the Smashing Pumpkins but I didn't go on any sort of fandom things but my my online username is still Smashing Pumpkins related and I can't and I can't I can't get rid of it I don't really care for for it anymore but I can't get rid of the name I've had it since 1995 amazing I used to have a regurgitator email domain and that was you know that was fandom but you know there aren't that many other people out there who've using the same username online since 1995 (laughs) that's cute (laughs) 
That's lovely. Oh, my gosh. So, Rose, tell us how long is the duration of your show during Melbourne Fringe? Um, oh, wait, the show itself or the run of the show? Both, but the run, really. <laughs> the show is 50 minutes. Yes. The run is, um, what is it now? Uh, uh, it's a it's a Thursday. Through, October wait, the 5th. Yes, starts on the 5th, goes till the Sunday, and then it comes back on the Thursday, and there's just the Thursday and Friday. Beautiful. <laughs> know that better. <laughs> and people can find all those details. Yes, they can find them um, on the Melbourne Fringe website or, um, I mean, also on my Instagram if they want the more personal touch. Definitely. Which is rose.y.bishop, which is my real name. So. Beautiful. Uh, that's very, very 2023 of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so head to melbournefringe.com.au and um, look up two stories about going on the internet. We'll see you there. Yeah, we'll I be know. the strangers from the internet. I know from your stories that it's a show we're going to love. Yeah, thanks so much, Rose, for coming and sharing the stories. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. You're listening to Bite Into It with Joe and Vanessa. You might know Fenella Kernebone from her work in radio and TV and all sorts of thoughtful coverage of culture and creativity. But did you know they're also head of programming for the inaugural South by Southwest Sydney Conference taking place next month? We need some help navigating the packed program, so thanks for joining us, Fenella. Thank you. Very good to be here and to chat with you, Vanessa. Thank you. Yeah, it is our pleasure. So South By has run in Austin, Texas since 1987, though its shape has changed heaps over the years. As someone who has been to the Austin version, how would you describe the experience? So going to Austin and being at the actual event, I actually only went for the first time this year and the, the words that I described to myself was, oh, my God, this is enormous, this is massive and so much fun. There was a lot to navigate from music events through to the enormous conference, which is really what I was there for. Cues, tech, innovation, music, games, screen, you name it. Like it was quite an enormous event and over, over in sort of a really tight but really significant precinct in Austin. So, so to, to experience it, I mean, the first thing I realised was I couldn't go and get to see everything. So really sort of creating my own or navigating my own experience was really important. And the same is going to be true for Sydney, the South by Southwest Sydney. So it's very much about, uh, we always use the term of choose your own adventure, but there's a lot to look at. There's a lot of sessions in the conference and there's so much stuff happening at night. There's free events, you name it, across the day. So really having that time to look through the schedule um, and discover is what it's all about. I actually went to South By for the first time this year also and oh, cool. um, and it was definitely um, borderline overwhelming experience and, and, you know, so much FOMO and you really had to be quite decisive. I wonder, you know, having the first South By in Australia, in Sydney this year, you know, have you had some advantages in being able to kick this off and think about what you're setting up as part of the standards for, for a Sydney experience? I think so, and I think I think Austin really knows what they're doing, right? They've been doing it for 35 years, and it grew organically from what was a music festival to the big, beautiful beast that it is today. So being able to do that in Sydney, there is a blueprint, and also there's the, the wizards, the people that have been making this event um, successful for, for so many years that we're able to refer to, to talk to, to ask questions. So that blueprint exists. 
What's different about Sydney is that it, it's not it's not the, the length of that festival. It's it's shorter. It's only seven days. Um, we're not trying to do as much. It takes time to get to that point. So you know, within that seven day framework with Sydney, we have our conference, which is Monday to Saturday, most of the sessions from Monday to, to Friday. And that's just in the daytime. That's your usual conference. There's 19 conference tracks or separate conferences happening at any one time and a really significant second innovation um, component of that. But on top of that, there's the music festivals where, you know, it's, you get to go along and see bands and artists performing, emerging artists across the Sydney um, CBD precinct where the, the music is taking place. There's screen, you know, there's sessions of, you know, watching movies during the day and, and of course, at night and then all the premieres that take place and the red carpets. And, and then there's a whole game showcase too. But, you know, tech and innovation is so principal to the core of South By uh, and it's sort of part of its beating heart. And so part of the tech and innovation conference um, conversation that I'm so excited about is that there's these seven tracks conference sessions that are taking place in technology and startups and AI and robotics. There's the tech expo, there's the startup pitch as well um, and all of this of course being led by my amazing colleagues Caroline Pegram who's the tech, uh, head of tech and innovation and her, her team too. So it's, 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 it's a, it's, there's a lot going on um, and two weeks out from the event we're, we're all just so excited that it's finally coming to fruition. It's it's pretty thrilling. I bet you are um, and we're pretty thrilled to hear you know, about your seven tracks going through the tech and innovation space uh, because you know there are so many lively conversations and uh, particularly post-pandemic we are realising how much we missed out upon um, not having chances to connect in person and have yeah. these sort of conversations. Um, one thing that's really innovative about the process itself of putting together the program at South By is the panel picker aspect of that process and I was really excited to see that being woven through the Sydney planning of the event as well. Could you explain to our audience a little bit of, of what that is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the actual conference itself has more than 400 sessions um, and, and Austin has been doing this successfully for years, as, as do many other conferences, to be honest, around the world. But it, it is a submission process. So Panel Picker, I have looked at and admired as a journalist myself um, for many, many years because Panel Picker is essentially where the applications are open to um, professionals across all of the industries to submit their ideas to sessions that they would like to see across whatever conference tracks that they might have. And so they open it up for a number of weeks every single year. People submit their sessions and then through a process of public voting, but also track advisors, so industry experts who help to advise on the specific sessions. And of course, the internal team, they then whittle that down to a, a large proportion of the sessions that you finally see at the conference. So we, we use the same model, um, but we didn't use the term panel picker. We're calling it session select. Oh, there we're you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it, we, you know, it's Australia. You've got to do it differently, right? Nice, nice. Um, so, so so we did. So we did session select, and we opened that up late last year. It ended towards the end of um, February, so we had it open for a few months. Um, and I was expecting it, honestly, to receive you know 600 submissions and all good. And I watched it tick over on that final night. We ended up getting more than 1,400 submissions oh on session select. So it pretty much doubled. So everybody sort of put it in at the last minute. Classic, classic, but absolutely perfect. And and obviously through a process of um, strong curatorial with our track advisors, we went through and had to whittle those sessions down to the number that we see today. Now, that's not all of them, of course, because we have our featured sessions, we have our keynotes, we have our curated sessions. 
um, that are included into the entirety of, of the program. So, you know, they're, they're a bit again, you know, like even in, if you're going if you're going to experience uh, multitudes of sessions in the ICC Sydney, um, which is the Convention Centre, or the University of Technology Sydney, or the Powerhouse Museum, where the conference precincts takes place, as well as the JMC Academy, you'll be able to go and watch panels solo presentations, attend networking um, sessions called meetups. There were some workshops as well within sort of 10 till 5 o'clock across the week for the conference. So, yeah, the session select is very much the same as Panel Picker, um, but it's a really incredible way to draw on the thought leadership and the expertise from across industries. I love that, and I love that it really allows um, local expertise to shine in this place that, in, you know, under this brand that really puts a spotlight on Australian and Southeast Asian talent. Um, there is real pulling power with the, the South by brand. And for fans of computing and technology in particular, I saw that you called out some sessions recently that you recommend. I wondered if you'd like to speak to some of those stunning um, people you've been able to attract to the conference so I will, I will preface this, that I am the head of conference programming, but we do in fact have a head of tech and innovation. His name is Caroline Pegram. So I, I, will, I will firstly um, acknowledge, and also, the, of course, my amazing um, team of producers, Jess Campanaro, who's um, working across the sessions when it comes to the tech and innovation space, and everybody else on, on the team who've been working so hard to make this great. It's actually kind of impossible to pick out particular sessions. So I can I can start with the big names, right? So we know that um, Cal Henderson, who's the co-founder of Slack, he's coming to Australia. That's super exciting. Slack's massive, man. It's absolutely thrilling to know that he's going to be here to share some insights about working and creating um, such an important platform. Um, Amy Webb, who's a futurist from the state, she's our keynote. We're going to be seeing her on, on Monday. So I think that in itself is going to be very, very exciting. We have uh, Minister Hugh Six, who's on a session. Um, there's an amazing uh, session. Even you know, even the ASX is turning up. They're doing a session <laughs> for there is beauty, and in a really fantastic way. They're talking about um, there is beauty in a connected marketplace. You know, yes. capital markets in the age of ESG and AI. Yes. Um, there's a session with an absolutely amazing session with Julianne Mangrant, who's the eSafety Commissioner. She's going to be joined by Noel Silver Russell, who's a world leader in AI, working with Accenture and Jackie Kernow. And it's all about cybersecurity and responsible AI, the safeguarding the digital frontier. Um, there's a great session that has Professor, distinguished Professor Feng Chen from UTS, Ed Santo and, and others called It's 2050 and the Robots Are Among Us. Oh, fantastic. Love to see Ed getting out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's a session called Australia's Future as a, a tech powerhouse. Like, I'm barely even scratching the surface of the sessions that you'd be interested in. We're thrilled by this. You know, we we also saw that founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn, Cindy Gallup, is going to be there. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you Yay, Cindy. definitely one of my favourite people. Um, right yeah. now. Uh, yeah, so she's coming and thank you so much for mentioning her like this this is the thing like we've got all these amazing keynotes and we've announced Chance the Rapper and we've announced Charles, Charlie Brooker who is the um, the, the showrunner for um, oh my god Black, Black Mirror, Mirror. Right? yes so then you've got that screen and AI kind of convergence happening but on top of that there's these amazing speakers who are coming to the country to share their insights um, Cindy um, you know uh, uh, Oh, my God. Cindy Gallup is an absolute perfect example of that. Even Genevieve Bell, you know, yes, she's doing yeah. a session and she has just been announced yes. as the, the VC for ANU, which is absolutely 
one of the most amazing things. Uh, when I woke up yesterday and heard that, I just went, oh, amazing. I, I just read that this morning. Well. Very stoked. Camilla Gordon, the CEO of Lima Chain, which is basically, um, you know, transforming how how we sort of uh, process our, our meat, essentially, and our food. So from, from farm to, to plate using AI in order to safeguard um, I mean, it's fascinating, that ag tech. Yeah, it's such an emergent yeah. area and it's so relevant for Australia, you know, so relevant to where so much of our industry is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, there's obviously there's sessions there that talk to space. I know Jim Free from NASA is, is, is joining us. There's a session called Flying Car in Your Driveway. Oh. Uh, Airspeed is coming to, coming to play. And I know there's going to be a flying car in the expo, I'm told. So again, I don't want to step on other people's. Um, where there's a lot, there's a lot to dig through, I, and I do encourage anybody to have a look at the schedule and come and hang out. Look, it, it is hi. such a massive schedule. It's a credit to you and and you know your colleagues. Thanks for calling out so many of them. Really appreciate that. Um, South by Southwest is on from the 15th to the 22nd of October in Sydney. Head to sxswsydney.com to check out more. And Fenella, we really thank you for taking time out so close to your festival to speak with us. Um, we wish you every success and can't wait to see how it goes down. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Have a lovely night. Enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It is Weird News of the Week time, and in Weird News of the Week, all those NFTs people bought are officially worthless. <laughs> have you all seen? of them? Well, have you seen the article? I haven't. Um, Gizmodo uh, has been writing a lot about NFTs over time, and a few days ago they put out the provocative, this provocative title and... Uh, you know, so for those who didn't catch up with NFTs, the non-fungible tokens are unique assets stored on the blockchain and theoretically they couldn't be replicated except that you kind of could replicate them but not in the same way as on the chain. And uh, Bored Ape images were one of the famous, potentially very likely over-inflated um, value images on, you know, in the non-fungible token universe. Um but cryptocurrency analysts Dapper Gamble have determined that out of the 73,000, over 73,000, total NFT collections that are analysed, uh, around 69,000 had zero Ethereum market cap, which is to say, you know, zero. They were worth zero. So when looking at brand name uh, top NFT collections, they looked at about you know, just under 9,000 of these. Uh, things like CryptoPunks, 18% of them now have a zero floor price. 41% are worth between US $5 and $100. And they're saying that this this speaks to a perceived lack of value in the NFT space. And to put this in context, you know, the the frothiness around the investment in NFTs at times saw auctions of these products and things were going for thousands and thousands of dollars. And so for so many of them to be worth zero at this point shows that um, it was a flash in the pan. It was a bubble of a market that we couldn't contain the value in these things. And that, that's really, it's really challenging because I think, you know, for a lot of artists at the time, there was finally a chance to go, I can 
get my electronic art uniquely catalogued and then sold and tracked through a marketplace and I can get some value back. And the idealistic part of me, you know, wishes that that was possible. Like that would be really nice. The idea of the provenance is really nice. You know, the idea of artists getting paid is always great. What wasn't great was turning it into a stock market. And you could argue that maybe the arts market as a whole becomes that as well. So perhaps the technology to do that for artists might stick around, do you think? I mean, the technology is here. It will stick around. It's definitely, it's used for, you know, tracking sorts of documents and things. And people are experimenting with doing it with contracts. I guess it's just a failed commodities market. So I'd love yeah. to to get someone who um, has a bit of financial nous to, to talk about that with us sometime. So we might look that up in the future. Do we get I, to talk about events? I think we get to talk about events. Amazing. Let's yeah. do it. Coming up is MAP's annual demo day. So MAP is the Melbourne University Accelerator Program. Usually they have 10 teams at any time um, that are being invested in. This year there's an extra team because they secured some additional funding for a social impact sustainability and climate stream. So there's 11 accelerators going through the program. And if you're interested in what they're doing, you can go to their demo day every Every year they have one of these as well. Um, so the different startups are equipped with $20,000 equity-free funding and they get some inner-city office space and access to business mentors to help accelerate their growth. Um, it's usually a very interesting event. If you want to find out more about it, it's happening on the 22nd of November at the Forum Melbourne Connect. You can find out more about it at melbourneconnect.com.au and uh, look for the map demo day. Yeah, if you want to see what interesting new ideas are going and trying to make themselves viable businesses in Melbourne. I think that's kind of awesome. And um, Melbourne International Games Week is on. Is on. If you go to gamesweek.melbourne, you can find out what's happening. There's tons there. You know, there's the PAX component. There's the Free Play Independent Games Festival component. Um, There's... Bits from Victorian government investment in games. There's indie studios putting on cool things. We spoke last week with After Climate, who are releasing their industry net zero tracking snapshot into the games industry, which is incredible. Um, So many game developers who we love are going to be there. Um, Support your locals, support your indies, you know, get lucky to have. Yeah, lucky to have such a strong local scene. Absolutely, yeah. So that that seems um, that's great, and I look forward to seeing people out there in their cosplay. Um, yes, so, yeah. Smile at a cosplayer today. Um, hey, thanks to our guests this evening. We spoke with Rose Bishop ahead of her Melbourne Fringe Festival show. That show again is called Two Stories About Going on the Internet. Check it out at the Melbourne Fringe site. Um, we also just spoke to Fenella Kernerbone. Um, legend who is doing conference uh, head of conference programming at South by in Sydney this year you can find out more at sxswsydney.com check it out it's going to be amazing thanks Joe for being my co-pilot tonight thanks it's been a really great show yeah it's been enjoyable and uh, we got to reminisce about old school internets shout out to my friend polecat out there who's definitely cat internet um <laughs> thanks to our talks producer lou lynn we've been bite into it and we'll be back next wednesday evening Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 